Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. You'll hear Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan, on the issue of the Prime Minister's call with the Premiers on the coronavirus. Dr. Michael Gardam, infectious diseases specialist on the advancement of COVID-19, what it's doing to the global population. And Tom Caldwell on the stock market upheaval. Mr. Caldwell is the chair of Caldwell Investment Management. Our sports fans are going to handle the disappearance of professional sports. We spoke with Professor Adam Earnhardt about that. And from Rome, Stefano Serafini on the Roman capital, on the capital city of Italy, under the lockdown. Some of what you'll hear on the podcast today. Well, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe is the chairman of the Council of the Federation. That's Canada's premiers and uh, territorial leaders. The premiers, as you know, were scheduled to hold two days of talks with Justin Trudeau last Thursday and Friday. They were canceled by Mr. Trudeau when his wife, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, tested positive for the coronavirus. There was, though, we understand, a call between the prime minister and the premiers concerning COVID-19. We're going to speak about that and some other issues with the Premier of Saskatchewan, who joins us now on the program, Premier Scott Moe. Premier, thank you very much for the time, and you have cases in Saskatchewan now. They're everywhere. How prepared... We do. We do. Always a pleasure to join you, Ray. Thank you, sir. How prepared are you, and from after your conversation with the Prime Minister and Premiers, in a general sense, how prepared is this country? Well, I, I think we are we are well prepared in this country. We have uh, good leadership, I think, in provinces uh, across Canada, as well as our, our federal uh, uh, chief medical health officer, and, and and each of them are are you know doing their level best uh, to make the decisions that they need to in their respective jurisdiction to uh, manage this outbreak and what is now a global pandemic, but to manage it in our in our provinces and manage it collectively across uh, the nation, and that is what we have to do we we aren't able to avoid this this outbreak in this this pandemic but what we you know what we are doing collectively is doing uh you know our level best to ensure that we can manage it to flatten the curve if you will and to uh uh you know provide the the safety and security and and the, the medical service for the residents that we collectively represent across the nation so i, I think we're well poised uh, to to manage this um, what we need to do is just continue to communicate and, and work together. How closely are the premiers working together as a group? Uh, I would say rather closely. I've talked to a number of them today, and and uh, uh, we we are uh, collaborating on on the actions that we are taking in each of our respective jurisdictions. Understanding there are some differences in in what respective jurisdictions are doing, um, but there's also differences in the level of of. Uh, you know, of infection, uh, if you will, the numbers uh, of people that have uh, have contracted uh, COVID-19 in, in certain areas and the per capita numbers are, are most certainly different. Uh, um, so there there is a somewhat different levels of response in different areas of the nation. Um, but we are talking very closely to ensure that we, uh, uh, you know, where we can, we are aligning that response and that we are sharing the best practices and sharing what's working and, and talking with other nations, really, on, on what's been working there. We do have a, a roadmap to follow. Premier, what was the conversation like uh, with the Prime Minister about COVID-19? Uh, it was it was a good conversation uh, with respect uh, to uh, the Prime Minister and then also an update from each of our respective jurisdictions. And I, I think that's where it really uh, becomes uh, very evident that uh, this this has uh, moved out from realistically areas where there are international airports and, and moved out uh, into, into other areas across the nation. Us in Saskatchewan, um, we do have international airports and not receiving anywhere near the international flights uh, that are coming into, let's say, a Toronto or a Vancouver or even a Montreal uh, for that matter. And so our cases are, are much lower. And, and, and so we're working to support uh, those other areas and, and also uh, working... Uh, uh, working uh, within the province here to ensure that when we do have a, a positive case, and we've tested over 500 in Saskatchewan, we do have six positive cases, uh, that we very quickly isolate that individual and uh, determine if it has been related to, to travel, and all of our six cases have been thus far, and then isolate uh, those those individuals that have been in contact with them. So I, I guess really what is important is uh, at this stage is, is the individuals that are coming in from other areas of the world that they pay very very um, you know strict attention to the the isolation um, the isolation 
recommendations that have come out here late last week. What do you know about the screening at the uh, at the airports for people who are arriving from outside the country? We've heard uh, that there's virtually no screening taking place. In fact, we had a call in the last hour from an Ontario resident who became very ill in Cuba, dry cough, high fever, um, reported to the doctor at the resort, was given some antibiotics, didn't help. She, uh, she, had, she just slept. She couldn't eat. She was really uh, quite ill, got onto a plane to fly home, bought business class tickets so she could be separated from most of the people on the plane as much as possible. Uh, she arrived at home, uh, was in terrible, terrible condition, 103-degree fever, coughing, and then called uh, the provincial health line. They got back to her in 14 hours and told her to go to the emergency or call the emergency. The emergency department said, don't come here. So she called her family doctor, and her family doctor said, don't come here. Or in the office, they said, don't come here. So 17 days later, she's out in the community again. She's, she's, she, you know, she kept herself isolated, but she's still not feeling well, and nobody's shown any interest in seeing her. Uh, yes, that, that's that, a disturbing story to hear. That is, uh, that is a disturbing story, and I hope it's not a, a common story. And I, uh, uh, I would hope that uh, she's able to find the, the, the care even at this point uh, that, that she needs so that she can determine exactly what was uh, what going on with her. Uh, her personal situation. Uh, listen, with the the um, you know the individuals that are coming in uh, to our airports and how there, there's a few things I, I think that need to be uh, everyone needs to pay attention to. First, are some of the the population mitigation measures that governments are doing. Um, you know, with respect to if you are coming from from overseas or international uh, countries that you that you do self isolate and and there's where the the uh, there's where the personal responsibility comes in that we do need people to take this very seriously. We do need people to uh, self-isolate uh, when they do come into, into Canada. And I, I think uh, us as uh, governments and as, uh, as leaders, and we're doing this in Saskatchewan in, in uh, very short order uh, to provide that information at our inbound flights so that people that have been away for a week, two weeks, maybe a month or two at times, I have that information when they uh, get off the plane, when they enter uh, back into our jurisdiction. So there is, uh, we're we're ramping up resources as we go with this, and uh, I think that's an area where we can we can probably do better across the nation. Yeah, when we hear repeatedly, um, and you know, did an interview yesterday, same same answer, came home, no screening. Uh, I'm seeing tweets and seeing emails arrived at the border, and we took calls earlier, no screening of the airports. Where have you been? Uh, essentially, what are you bringing back on your way? That's That doesn't seem to be, um, it's not what we're told is happening, not what we're told is or promised would be happening. I'm not telling you here, I'm just explaining yeah. this, what we're hearing, right. Premier, and it's concerning. Yeah, absolutely, and, and we need to uh, address those those concerns. We had a, a very real concern, and I'm 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 hopeful that we're finding our way out of out of the challenge that we had in our 811 helpline here in Saskatchewan, where quite frankly it was uh, originally overburdened with uh, just there was more calls than quite simply we had capacity mm-hmm. for. As uh, so, we very quickly in the course of about 24 hours were able to double. Uh, our capacity at that line, uh, which still wasn't enough. I, we've since, uh, as of last night, uh, have been able to increase that capacity um, many more times uh, than doubling it. And we're hopeful that we are getting to a point where where people are are actually not being put on hold for 30, 45 minutes on, on our health line, which is the line that we're asking them to call. So we've been working very hard at, at providing uh, those resources. In fact, we've We've kind of separated this into three areas where where we're looking at, and and uh, you know the first is restrictions that we're, we've been putting in place, the federal government has been putting in place, and and we're hopeful that individuals are are adhering to those restrictions and re- respecting them. Um, the second is the resources, as I mentioned, the health line. We're we're working to address uh, the resources that need to be available, and and third will come, and that will be the recovery that we uh, will need to look at as, as provincial jurisdictions, as industries, and as a, as a nation, uh, because it will be an economic recovery that uh, we will have to be working very hard on to ensure it occurs, because there is an economic toll to uh, dealing with uh, a pandemic such as this. How do we put all this together? How, how, how can we uh, do this for us, please? Put it together for us. 
Well, yeah, and I, I see really three three points. As I mentioned, the first is the restrictions that uh, you're seeing provinces and, and Canada, the governments uh, collaborate on, and, and hopefully individuals will uh, place a high priority on adhering uh, to those restrictions. The second will be ensuring the resources are in place, which is uh, the investment that needs to be there for testing, for medical uh, medical services and such. And that is going to be higher across the nation in the num- next number of uh, weeks. We understand that as we manage uh, what is a is a pandemic and and uh, but last but not least uh, is the the impact this is going to have on the economy. We you're right. We've seen what's happened at the TSX, the Dow, some of the markets uh, that are relevant to our North American economy, um, and it it is uh, having uh, <laughs> quite an impact in 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 the uh, you know double digit percentage uh, percentage rates. So. How long that impact is going to be there, I think, is the first question that we all have. Um, but it is there now, and, and we have to deal with it. And this is going to have an impact uh, not only on provincial budgets, um, but it's going to have an impact on the, the broader GDP of our Canadian economy. And so we need to uh, come together very quickly uh, once and, and as we are dealing with this, this health pandemic, uh, ensuring that we are providing that safety and security for all of the people of this province, but come together very quickly after to ensure that we're giving the economy every opportunity to uh, to regain its vigor. And this is but one more challenge uh, in an economy that we have challenged numerous times, often, all too often, I say, um, by our own actions. But, uh, you know, that that's a conversation that's coming. Um, right now, we need to deal with the the, uh, the pandemic that's before us. Of course. I do have to ask you this. Uh, given that the two days of meetings with the Prime Minister were cancelled, uh, two questions. Was teleconferencing ever an option? And then secondly, is there any tentative date set to hold these meetings that never took place? No, no tentative date yet. As, uh, as I said, it's all hands on deck right now and at all the uh, provincial territorial leader, uh, leadership levels as well as, uh, as, well as the, the federal government. And I've talked uh, with Christian Freeland as well as the Prime Minister both in the last number of days. All hands are on deck in, in ensuring that we have the, the resources and the restrictions in place and, the, and they're appropriate uh, in, in each part of the country. We will need to come together very quickly uh, over the course of the next number of weeks and months again to discuss how this economy has been impacted and how we are going to support the recovery uh, of our Canadian economy to ensure that that uh, you know, those industries that are driving growth and creating jobs in, in, in our communities right across this country, many of those employees may have had to take 14 days or, or more off. They're going to be eager to get back to those jobs, um, but how we can support uh, um, the, the, the rebounding of our Canadian economy and and uh, so I would expect that everyone, including the Prime Minister, is going to be very, very receptive uh, to getting back together in the near future to have those discussions. They're very, very important that they happen. It's very important as well that the people that you just mentioned who find themselves in difficult financial situations because they're working part-time, for example, and if they don't put in the hours, they don't get paid, or they're part of the gig economy, and that's suffering tremendously now, do you, do you think there's going to be uh, relief for, for these Canadians coming down the road, whether it's provincial, federal, or both? Well, we, uh, yes. I, I, I see the uh, the federal government has already made some adjustments to the EI uh, situation. I see other governments uh, across the, the nation that are having a look at how best they can support, uh, you know, the hardworking people that have, uh, have chosen to self-isolate. And we most certainly don't want to have any barriers in place, in particular uh, family financial barriers in place, uh, to stress uh, that decision about whether or not I should self-isolate. We most certainly, if we're going to take this pandemic seriously, have to uh, ensure that people, uh, when when required, that they do make the choice to self-isolate. And uh, some of that will be supports for them. Uh, some of them may be supports for uh, the small business or, or the, uh, the their employer uh, to ensure that they make it as, as uh, e- easy as possible or as less stressful as possible, I might say. Uh, to to make the right decision, we uh, we're really in the uh, well. I don't want to say we're in the early days because we want it to be over, but we really are, I suppose, in the early part of all of this. And maybe we can learn from other countries who are ahead of us in the curve. But uh, we we're facing something that we haven't faced before, and I understand that it's uh, particularly challenging for people in the position that you're in, uh, Premier. Uh, everybody's going to point to you and look to you, but uh, you're in a leadership position, and I think you do it ex- excellently. So, 
Dr. Michael Gardam joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, infectious diseases specialist and chief of staff at Humber Valley Hospital in Toronto. Dr. Gardam, thank you very much for the uh, for the time. Uh, I don't know if you're as shocked at, and you just heard 25 seconds of the call, and I've described what happened to uh, to my caller. Are you shocked at what took place? Um, yes and no. I think that her story, uh, which sounds horrible, is... Uh, pretty indicative of our of our challenges with this virus. So back in, in February when this started, right, the world was focusing on basically China. And I think her story illustrates really well the, the fact that while we've been busy focusing on certain parts of the world, this virus has likely been spreading around the world uh, quietly. And, you know, now we're starting to see outbreaks all over the world. And so it's hard to know, um, you know, without because I, I I didn't catch in that piece if she had actually been tested for this or not yet. But no, nobody 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 will see okay. her. No one will see her. Yeah, yeah. So it's hard to know whether this is COVID nineteen or something else. But it really drives, dr- does drive home the point that your strategies, when they're based purely on travel, the fact that she came back from from Cuba means she wouldn't be on anybody's radar, and that's slowly changing now. Where I mean, the the, the thing about you know travel is is largely going out the window at this point because we have increasing cases everywhere around the world. So, you know, that the whole thing starts to fall apart at that point. And then in terms of, you know, where she would go, I mean, that, that, that also sounds horrible. That well, she called, really, she called telehealth and it took them yeah. 14 hours to get back to her. They said, go to Emerge. And the Emerge said, no, don't come here. Uh, so she called her family doctor. They don't want to see her. This happened on the yeah. 26th of February. She was on a plane filled with people. Who knows what she had, yeah. whether it was COVID-19 yeah. or not. But she had all the indicators, which should suggest that somebody would want to look at her. And if she does have the, the virus, then you'd want to be chasing down the people who were on the plane or were with her at the resort. No, you're absolutely right. I don't have any, uh, I have no argument with that, right? I mean, if, if people are feeling that ill with their temperature that high, yeah, uh, she should have been seen in, in, in an emergency department. So, to the gen- generic questions, if there is such a thing as a generic question anymore, but the numbers of those infected by COVID-19 are increasing across this country, and we're told that's going to continue very rapidly and quickly. Firstly, is that inevitable? And if numbers of significantly sick Canadians climb rapidly, are our various hospitals and care centers across Canada equipped to provide what the really sick will require? Yeah, so for the short term, for your first question, the answer is yes, it is inevitable. We are going to see increases in cases. And the cases, uh, when you look at the data around the world, these cases are are, uh, increasing exponentially. So they're doubling every, you know, three to four days. And so we are going to see more cases. Now, Canada has started to bring in some, you know, moderately severe social distancing recommendations and, and you know, numbers of organizations such as uh, sports organizations and things have canceled large gatherings. And so that may blunt uh, the number of cases that we see, but, but that's not going to have an impact for a little while because the transmission up until now has already happened. So that is going to increase. And then the reason we've done that is because of your next question, which is, do we have enough infrastructure to care for everybody? And the answer is, if we have a, a moderate wave, like a bad flu season, yeah, we can figure that out. But if we have something worse than that, uh, then no, we're going to be in, in real trouble. And so, you know, this weekend has been all about looking at how we can build more capacity in our healthcare systems and our hospitals to, you know, potentially stop elective procedures, to free up staff as well as potentially looking for additional beds and ICUs and things like that. I mean, we're all watching what's going on in Italy right now, and, you know, that's our worst-case assumption, and we want to try to prepare for something that bad as well as we possibly can. This came on so quickly. That must have a huge impact as well. So is the infectious diseases community unified on action to take uh, against the coronavirus, and by by the infectious community, I mean not only in the province of Ontario or Canada, or Canada and the United States, but internationally. Yeah, we we really are, and I mean that's kind of unusual. Normally, we're all a bunch of academics who disagree with each other all the time, but I think in this particular circumstance, there's very few people who are not saying that this is this is very serious. It. it I mean, maybe we could have more arguments a month and a half ago, but now having seen where this is going and what it's doing in other parts of the world, uh, 
it'd be pretty hard to argue that this, you know, is going to be a mild problem. I think most of us believe this is going to be a serious problem for us for the next several months. And the, the outstanding question right now is how serious? Are we able to slow down the spread enough that our system is going to be able to handle the increased volume? Right. I had a question that uh, I found quite intriguing, and I think it is of significance because we're told that people over the age of 60 and particularly over the age of 70 are in more significant or at more significant risk than younger people from this virus. So I received a question, and it was, what do I do about taking my meds? I'm not supposed to put my hand to my mouth, but I this is how I do it. I pick up my medications, and I put them in my mouth using my hand. What am I supposed to do? I, I can't yeah, answer I that question. Yeah, I think the answer there is simply whenever your hand's going to your face or to your mouth, if you've washed your hands just before that, you're fine. Okay. And so whether whether you're using alcohol gel or soap and water, I mean, it's hard to find alcohol gel these days, but soap and water also works as well uh, to just remove anything that's on your hands prior to uh, taking the medications. And, and we should state, I think, because there's a lot of, there's a tremendous amount of fear about this, uh, about this virus. Risk factor, like age or underlying conditions, doesn't mean you're going to die if you get the virus. It just means you're at greater risk, right? That's absolutely right. And so, you know, and, and, and it goes both ways, right? So people who have increased risk, uh, you know, that, as, as you said, it doesn't mean you'll end up in an ICU or that you're going to die from this. By the same token, people who are 25 years old and have no risk factors, once in a while, those people could get very sick as well. So all this really is is just, you know, the likelihood that you'll get into trouble or not get into trouble. It doesn't, it, it is not absolute. Dr. Gardam, I, uh, I don't have all the questions. Uh, I, I have a lot of questions, but I don't have them all. Is there something specific that you want to share with us that I haven't thought to ask you? You know, I think the big thing for me, and we've seen it in the last 72 hours, where I think Canada as, as a country, we've shifted away from thinking about this as a travel problem to realizing this is a local problem. And to me, that's very good. That's exactly the headspace we need to be in. And really, the message I've been sending out is this social distancing thing is, is very serious. And so, you know, I'm asking everybody to think about what do you do during the day that brings you into crowds of people? And do you need to do that? You know, can you distance yourself and your family from others? Uh, and if we can do that for the next couple months, that is going to have a major impact as to whether our healthcare system is going to be overwhelmed or not. And perhaps what we might uh, do is stop pushing the message that for 80% of the people who contract the virus, it's going to be a mild experience, because I think that provides a false sense of security. Well, it does. And, and the, th the key thing about a, 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 a pandemic like this is that it, it's not about the individual, it's about the whole system. And so it may very well cause mild illness in you, but you're going to spread it to two other people who spread it to two who spread it. And you can see how exponentially that increases. Right. And at least somebody along that chain is not going to do so well with this. And there'll be enough of those people that our system is, is uh, has the potential to be overwhelmed. Tom, thank you uh, very much for taking the time. Thank you, Roy. Let me ask you, first of all, have you ever experienced a combination of events like we've all that we're all experiencing now not a combination but i've seen a lot worse markets than this so how do we how would you assess what we've seen because when you combine the emotional reaction the emotional response and the fear factor of covid-19 with what happened on the markets and people have their life's investments in many cases uh in the market how do you assess what's what's gone on well I uh, picked up one of our national papers today, and every single page of the front section had to deal with uh, COVID-19. Uh, we have a full-blown panic on our hands because we don't know exactly how big and how bad this is. And by the way, there are no experts. People suffering themselves, they're suffering, and that's about the maximum expertise you can get. I do believe that what is concerning to markets is, well, you don't know what firms are going to get shut down, but from the end of this, as we get through this, it's going to be a slightly different-looking economy. For example, right now you've got these uh, cruise ships at $800 million each parked uh, down in Fort Lauderdale. You've got aircraft that's not working. You've got organizations that can't get supplies uh, on board. So we're going to see companies with some significant working capital problems. 
Now, governments always say, well, we've got plans for this. I've never seen a government program effective in that regard, period. But what's going to happen is you're, you're going to have working capital problems, and some companies will fail as a result of this. Similarly, when we come out of it, and we will come out of it, by the way, this is not the Black Plague. This is a flu epidemic. This is We're, we're going to live and move on, and, and sadly, some people won't make it. Um, will it be greater than the existing flu? I don't know. Uh, so far, 30,000 people have died of the existing flu in America this flu season. But the world, the economic world, is going to look a little bit different. You're going to shorten supply chains. You may not be as reliant on China in the future. Uh, the Chinese economy is going to get hit by this for a long time. North American economy, credit facilities are also going to be very badly strained. So the, those concerns in markets, uh, added to that, you have that sense of panic because we just don't know. We don't know when it's going to top. We don't know how badly it's going to spread, nor do we indeed know what the casualty numbers are going to be at the end of the day. So this uncertainty always causes panic. If I looked at markets, though, I can just say what I'm doing, which is no guarantee against, <laughs> against loss. But for me, uh, I'm not selling into this market at this point in time. I'm not buying either. I'm just sort of standing back, trying to get a handle on what's going on. As you can see, we can, we can be down a tremendous amount on Thursday and back up a tremendous amount on Friday. And, and Monday is is a wild game as well. You just don't know in this wildly shifting. But there's a lot of panic being spread. And I keep thinking of uh, Roosevelt's comment that, that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Well, we've got something to fear here. But the, the, the measures being taken and the emotions involved in it are starting to be their own pandemic, if you will. So that would be my, my very quick summary of what I see right yeah, now. It, it's when you, uh, when you know of the lockdown of the entire nation of Italy. And we've spoken to a guest from Italy yesterday and today who described what's going on and the tremendous strain their healthcare system is under. Then France follows with essentially a lockdown. Not quite been called that, but it might as well be. You have the situation in Spain, similarly. Uh, you have travel restrictions, United States banning human flight from Europe, now including the UK and Ireland. Um, you get the statistics the numbers of people who've been infected and the number of people who've died, I'm starting to think that that statistic is probably one that we should not be repeating as much as we are because it's inevitably going to go up. It's, it's, it's good to know, but to repeat it every few minutes is, is I think, over the top. Um, but this, is, this inevitably is going to play on people's emotions and fears, and it plays on the emotions and fears of the people who are also in the stock market, the and, and people who run companies, they now are concerned. You, I mean, you know this far better than I. They're concerned about the viability of their companies in some case. Not well, that will be the case in, in some of these. Some are going to be starved. It becomes personal, doesn't it, Tom? To be restaurants. I mean, I, I was out for breakfast this morning, and uh, I sure didn't need reservations. There were only about two or three uh, tables filled. So there are going to be these concerns uh, going on, but. Remember, 90% or some high percentage of my job is helping people quell their emotions. Emotions are how you lose money. So the key is to try to stay calm. I'm just living my life the way I'm normally living it. I'm taking extra precautions, wash my hands, don't stand too close to people, not be glad-handing and shaking hands with everybody I run across. And that's all I can do. And other than that, I'm getting on with the rest of my life. And I'm over 70, so theoretically I'm in a high-risk area, but uh, uh, that doesn't particularly bother me. So as far as I'm concerned... We've come through, listen, my grandmother died in the great flu epidemic, the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918-19. Uh, but, you know, I can do what I can do, but I'm not going to get my knickers in a knot. Uh, you know, is it going to help me? I'm going to stay in my room. If I, if for some reason or other there's a reason I have to, then I'll, I'll do what is advised. But uh, in the rest of the, for the rest of the time, I'm going to get on with the rest of my life. Look at markets. Look at what's happening. Look at value. Knowing one thing for certain, this too shall pass. Is there any way to, I won't say predict, but have a sense of what follows in the market, what follows of what has happened over the last days? My sense, I said, I think in your program a few weeks ago, is this will pass and the markets will go up. And uh, that will happen. At some, I can't tell you when. I don't know if it's going to be this week, next week, or a year from now. But that will happen. We will get through this. We will find the antidotes and get on with the rest of our lives. And and we are going to be, our children are going to be confronted with pandemics because a lot of these diseases are coming back bitter, bigger and badder than they were before, such as polio, tuberculosis, etc. So, so this is going to be our, quote, new normal. But the one thing is that we, we have the technology, 
we have the modeling, we have the artificial intelligence that can really do calculations fast. We can get on top of this pretty quickly. We may not have a vaccine for a year and change, but we may have a cure in a matter of months. Do you consider Canada's economic strength to be such that it is of a, a real value to us going forward? Because if we look back to 2009, at that time, during that, uh, the Great Recession, the, this country was the envy of the rest of the world. Well, we stopped making intelligent economic decisions for growth. We've stopped making decisions, period. And when leadership cannot or will not you know, take the tough decisions, you have anarchy. Uh, the one of the problems of a democracy is you sometimes can have tyranny of the majority, but if there's anything worse, it's tyranny of the minority. So what happens is you take a look at Warren Buffett walking away in a $4 billion Quebec commitment, um, and you see oil prices just being pulled down to zero with the Saudis and the Russians fighting. They can increase volumes to counter that. We cannot. We have no more throughput. So Canada has put itself in a very, very bad economic position. We are not seen as a stable economic environment in which to invest. And if you take a look at our dollar, now it's 72 cents, uh, down several cents just in the last week or so. Uh, get ready for 70 cents and maybe lower, uh, because we're not seen as stable and we're not seen as decisive. Uh, we're seen as finger-waving on politically correct issues. So if we're not going to make decisions, they're going to be made for us, and they are. Canada is going into a very, very difficult economic period. So international confidence is not nearly where it should be. As far as Canada is concerned, absolutely yeah. not. Well, no, it is where it should be because there's no reason to have confidence in, in, in what we're doing as a government, what we're doing as a country. Uh, we're divided. Everybody's chipping away at each other. We have all these special interest groups that seem to have an inordinate say in what's going to be done in terms of running the country. Uh, and... Uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's going to cause us problems in the future because, like it or not, economic activity, it's, it's, a, it's a full contact sport. We're up against tough competitors. Our American cousins don't fool around in this game. And uh, we just think we can cruise around and, and uh, wave fingers at each other and, and, and other people. We're not. We've got to make decisions, have a strategy. Where is Canada going to go? What are we going to be when we grow up? And we seem to be drifting backwards. I, I think the phrase some years ago was Canada's back. Canada's not back. Canada has re retreated further back into the shadows. And, and frankly, at G7, we're not considered seriously. We're not considered at all, frankly. And, and I can tell you that as a fact, knowing people that are at the G7. One more question for you, Tom. If people were going to invest money at this time, and uh, you've told us before that in every downtown, downturn, there are opportunities. Where might that investment go? Well, for me, I tend to focus I, I, now, going with what I've just said, I would focus more on the U.S. market. On the, I think there's some great values there. And not to discount Canada. I mean, if you take a look, for example, at the Canadian banks now, which are a protective species within this country, despite the fact they're shoveling tens of thousands of jobs out the door, the yield, the dividend yield on, I think, Bank of Commerce is around 6.5%. And, and the rest of them are just not far off that. So, so basically, you can get 6% plus in your money. That's like an 8% bond. And sooner or later, uh, these, these companies will bounce back. So they'll add another 5 or so percent a year. There's your 10% there's your a year. So there, uh, there's not a lot of really, uh, uh, really difficult decisions to make. If you're taking, prepared to take a look out two years, uh, I think you can be fine at any time in this process. But that's not to say we can't have some real scary days. Remember, 1987, the market went down 30% in one day. One day. Uh, that's scary. I vaguely, vaguely remember being terrified. Yeah, I had, uh, I had, my, <laughs> <laughs> I had my moments of, of concern. <laughs> but, uh, but in the, those days, there was still a lot of time left on the calendar. <laughs> so. Well, I've decided I've got a lot of time left on the calendar because I've nowhere, nothing else to do, and if I get the chop, I get the chop. That's, that's, uh, that's the way life is. But, but I, I, I don't think... We need to be running around waving our hands saying the world is over. This is not the Black Death. It's not going to wipe out a major portion of humanity. Elderly people are vulnerable, uh, and even though I'm over 70, if I see elderly people, I will tell them. 
But as far as I'm concerned, I'm just going to live my life to the best of my ability and be sensible in my living it. I mean, use your brain as well, you know, whether it be the very simple things. But I haven't seen much more other than try to, you know, stay away from people, don't shake hands, wash your hands, and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And do, the, do those things. But the rest of it is I have no control over that. And, and again, all the experts, there are no experts because this is new territory for everybody. Joining me on the program is Professor Adam Earnhardt from Youngstown State University, founding member of the International Association for Communications and Sport. His books include Judging Athletes' Behavior and Sports Fans' Identity and Socialization, Exploring the Fandemonium. Adam, thank you very much for the time. Things are not good inside the Fandemonium. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, it's been um, an interesting last week. And in particular, you know, there's obviously the two groups to look at are the fans, but also the people who are, you know, producing and putting all this content out there. Um, we, I, my colleagues and I have some friends at ESPN, and over the last week they've been having some really hard discussions about esports and whether or not it made sense to go all in on esports now. But, you know, obviously this idea that you can uh, play those games and, and air those games from a distance they're they're actually still there's you know stadiums for esports so like what do you do if if those people aren't in the stadiums and it's it's a really trying time right now it is i uh, watched a bit of a european soccer game last night a video of it and nobody in the stands and it just doesn't look right it's like a practice it doesn't feel the same it doesn't oh, i know well you know and it it reminds me of we my colleagues and I, uh, it, I wrote a couple ESPN books with a guy, uh, John McGuire from Oklahoma State and, and, and Greg Armfield from New Mexico State. And uh, in, our, in our first book, we wrote about the early days of ESPN and the kind of content that they had to, to air. Because, you know, if you think back to the late 70s when ESPN started, um, they had nothing. So they were airing sports that I guarantee you some of your listeners had, have never even heard. Monster <laughs> hurling. What? <laughs> I mean, be sports that people have never heard of before, but it was it was all that ESPN had. And right. so right now, you know, if you look, it's funny today. I don't know if if you know this or not, but you know the uh, NFL, um, they they agreed on the yeah uh, the, the CBA. Yeah. So so you know that's actually dominating the news. So I that's know. Like you know, an, a one hour ESPN sports center, half of that's devoted to this, this collective bargaining and no one really, I mean, that's not very, I exciting. haven't mentioned it once on this program today because I've had no, <laughs> I've had no reason to. And then when you look at the fact that, uh, hundreds of NFL players didn't even bother to vote on their collective bargaining agreement, that's going to take them through 10 years. We're now looking at what's next as far as sports is concerned. Now, who would ever look, look uh, you and I spoke about three or four weeks ago, and it had to do with the Houston Astros cheating scandal. Yeah. That's what we were talking about. Here we are. It ain't even going to happen. There, I was looking to the forward to the first game that the Astros was going to play because they were playing a California team. It wasn't the Dodgers. It was going to be the Angels. But it would, you know, I expected some action. Now, here we are. We're looking at a scenario which has caused all the leagues and multi, multi-billions of dollars to shut down. And yeah. it's almost impossible to imagine, if it weren't happening, it would be almost impossible to imagine a scenario that would cause what's going on now. Well, you know, and I, it also, because you were asking me this question uh, on, on email about this, well, you know, what are, what are fans even supposed to do? So, I mean, obviously, there's no content. I'm... By the way, while I'm talking to you, I have, um, I think it's CBS Sports on right now. They're showing the, the Major League Fishing Pro Bass Championships. <laughs> so I'm actually watching this in the background while I'm talking to you because there's nothing else on. Yeah. And, and, and I'm, I'm just like every other fan. So, so in our research, we talk about, and this goes all the way back to the 60s, we, we've talked about these things called functional alternatives for people who consume media, right? And so functional, we put functional alternatives in three categories. It's complement, supplement, or replace. So, you know, when we think about when we're trying to watch media, complementing something, obviously, we're referring something that, that, that goes well with something else, right? Uh, and, and a supplement 
uh, is basically all that we're doing is just adding something to it. So obviously our smartphones are nice complements or supplements, but when you have nothing else, you look for replacements or substitutes. The problem is a lot of sports fans, if that's if they're passionate, if they're diehard fanatics, they have nothing else. So they, they might not have anything else that they want to consume. And so for them, um, it, this is a really challenging time. We're all in, uh, in, in an extremely challenging situation. How do you expect uh, this to progress? I mean, how does the communication, you're the communications expert as well, how do you communicate this reality to hundreds of millions of fans around the world on a continuing basis? We understand, we know what's going on, but at the same time, you're looking for some kind of emotional relief. You're looking for a getaway, and that's what sports provides to Again, hundreds of millions of people around the world. It's not there. How do you communicate that to them? Yeah, right. So you're looking for what? what's the relief, right? Because you can't, yes. you can't be on Twitter all day. You can't be on Facebook looking for this news all day. Uh, as, as much as I enjoy my 24-hour news channels, I mean, there's no way. I mean, you, you, you kind of get saturated with that. So you look for relief. And when you look for relief, you look for relief in the one thing that you know that is has always brought you that, and that's in, and for many people that's sports. But there are other things too. I think what we're going to end up finding is that that um, there's going to be a, a, a large uh, uh, hobby outcome from this. <laughs> people Maybe are so. going to find things to do that they've never. I was outside this morning uh, uh, cleaning my yard. I mean, I was like, I, I would have put that off for at least two more months. But you know, <laughs> here I am outside. You know messing around picking up branches and, and, and leaves and stuff. And I think we, we try, but that's the thing. I mean, we, we, we need to look for those things to do to kind of keep us occupied, right, especially right. to keep our mind off. All it's this. interesting you say that because I am the world's worst cook. Okay. I, I just really am. I claim the title <laughs> and I, and, it, and I own it. Uh, I actually thought this morning when I got up, Maybe I should get a cookbook and learn. <laughs> I'm telling you, like, I have no idea what to do. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm going to do. Stefano Serafini is with us from Rome. Mr. Serafini, Dr. Serafini, thank you so much for, for the time. I guess the, the first question I have to ask you is the most fundamental question, and it's all encompassing. How has the lockdown changed life in Rome? Well, life has changed totally. First of all, thank you for calling me. Uh, Italians have a special attitude for outdoor life, and and they are very sociable. And this lockdown means a, a huge change in our habits. Um, I can feel it even if I don't live exactly in Rome. I live in a little town. You know that Italy is made of four main big cities, and then a lot of little towns. Uh, mostly rural, uh, where you have little communities. And in front of me, I have now a beautiful scenario, this valley. Uh, I'm looking at Palestrina, the famous little town where uh, Giovanni Pierluigi de Palestrina, the famous musician of the 16th century, has been born. And the valley is empty. So there are no cars on the roads. And the only thing you can see is some police patrol. And people are reacting as they can. I would say that they behave pretty well, especially in the little centers. People are taking care of each other, especially of the elders, and this is really wonderful. Um, I can also say something about that in the sense that uh, this uh, crazy run for consumerism that is typical of all the Western world, including Italy, has been slowed down so much, and in a way... Uh, we can feel a kind of coming back to human relations, uh, especially because we have more time. Um, so even if people cannot hug and kiss, and now it's forbidden, it's illegal to kiss, uh, the, the, you can feel much more love among people in a way, uh, at, at least so far. Then the impression, you, 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 we, you, we get connected mostly with, through social media, uh, WhatsApp and things like that, and uh, I can tell that most of the news and the information is passed is pretty humoristic, uh, meant to cheer up each other, and it's pretty nice. Another thing that is different from what you can see on media uh, is the reaction to uh, 
um, to the shortage of, of food. There is no actually shortage of food in Italy. Um, there have been some episodes, but mostly people are really very well behaving. So I'm pretty surprised myself that I see that people are acting very responsibly. So people understand clearly, as as we are understanding in Canada, as the situation continues to evolve here, people are understanding of the, the vast difference, the vast change that has taken place in our collective society, and they're accepting of it. And that's good to hear. And particularly, you know, we, we hear this constantly, take care of the elderly because they shouldn't be out. Uh, and, and we had the Premier of Quebec, the province of Quebec yesterday, saying that everyone 70 and over should be home. So there's, a, there's a, an effort being made, and I know that you're very much involved with this, to provide the elderly with what they require, food and medication. And there's a real willingness to do this, I take it. Yeah, it's something going on not only here, but uh, throughout the country. Uh, that's another very good news that is coming out of this uh, tragic situation. Uh, the feeling of people is to help, um, and the most dominant feeling is worry for the elders. Um, we have seen what is going on in other countries, and this is pretty shocking for our mentality, because even if as I repeat, we are a consumeristic Western country, of course, but still we have this uh, important value about family, and our elders are very much respected. So the idea that we should accept they die because the health system cannot cope with the, this flood of, of cases is totally unacceptable. Uh, so people are doing the best to avoid the elders to pass through this, uh, this danger. Mm-hmm. Can you tell um, us, can you, I'm sorry, can you give us an idea of how well the medical system in Italy is in fact coping with this, this the huge stresses that it's under? That's the issue. So the medical system of Italy is ranked second or third in the world for quality, uh, but uh, since the last 20 years it passed a, a huge reformation due to some uh, European standards, especially financial standards. So our governments uh, made a lot of cuts on the system and it impacted hugely the system. Uh, this means, for example, that we have a much less doctor than we used to do, uh, much less hospitals, much less uh, hospital seats, etc., so hospital beds, etc., and right now, uh, our government decided to put uh, a lot of money, they are talking about 25 billion of euros. Um, this means actually uh, cutting a tie with the European Union in a way that followed afterwards. Germany put even 500 million billions of euros on this uh, fight. And so we are building hospitals. I know that uh, just today they got the news that only my region, the central region of Lazio, will open 1,000 more um, beds, hospitals, for coping with the situation. This is not enough. So the strategy, the actual strategy of the government is to um, make so that the flow is delayed as much as possible in order for the system to not collapse. Because if the system collapses, means that people will die because they cannot go in ICU. Right. Uh, so people that could be saved uh, won't. So that's, that's the situation. Today is a special day because we had the most high um, number of deaths so far, 368 in one day, in a total of uh, 1,809 uh, since the beginning of this, of this situation. Uh, another thing that should be noticed, though, is that the way Italians are measuring uh, taking this debt toll is very wide, very large, in the sense that uh, the, the, the authorities counted as debt for coronavirus, even people who are very, very old and in a very bad, healthy situation. For example, the first person who died was, uh, if I remember, 86 years old, and he was a terminal cancer in person. So, of course, this person, one could say that he died with coronavirus, not because of coronavirus, yes. but 
that's why probably we have so different death tolls in different countries. Dr. So Sarafini, could I could I ask you to hold on for just a moment? I just have to take a quick sure. break, but I'd, I'd like to speak with you for, for a little while longer, if we could. Now, Dr. Sarafini, let me ask you this. I don't want to miss out on this question. You've undergone experience so much in Italy with the COVID-19 um, pandemic, and you're experiencing so much now. After everything that you've gone through and the country has gone through and that Italians are experiencing, would you have advice for Canadians? We're behind you on this COVID-19 curve. What advice would you have for us? Well, I have no any political responsibility, so it's always easy to give a suggestion post hoc, no? how the ladies would say. But as a citizen, I would say take care of your elders and the means take care of yourself. But most possibly 80% of people who get the virus um, doesn't die, something like a flu. But the issue is that uh, this can compromise horribly 10-15% of the population, giving them uh, lung disease. Uh, and this may provoke death if it's not cured with ICU. So that's the issue. If uh, people act responsibly, shutting down events uh, crowded, avoiding touching each other, avoiding contact with more than two people, uh, this would uh, possibly make the flu to pass less less fast. So mm-hmm. it would be a much more slow uh, evol- evolution of the disease. All right. And this will help the system to not collapse. If I were because, to, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, another thing is, of course, observing as much as possible what is happening in China, what is happening in Italy, uh, because this may be precious for your uh, NH authorities to, to help providing support to the population. Um, another element, for example, in Italy, we are trying a new drug. Uh, actually, it's not a new drug. It's a drug that is used for uh, another disease. And it seems it works very well on patients. So there are experimentation running uh, on, and they may be very useful. But mostly it's a matter of civic, um, civic education, civic habit. So being responsible, everybody can really help and make a difference. Because if I pay attention not to get out, uh, keeping as much as I can home, uh, not going out for something that is not useful right now for a couple of weeks, for three weeks, this may make a big difference because they may not um, pass the virus to someone else but may eventually die because of this. Uh, one last question for you. Are you restricted? Are Italians restricted who are not uh, infected or show no, uh, no signs of the, uh, of the coronavirus and haven't been diagnosed with it? Are you still restricted as far as your personal movements are concerned? I do, of course, because it's very easy to be infected by the virus. So, uh, is possible I go in a bar to drink a beer, and there is high possibility that I get the virus from someone, and then I can pass by to someone else. Because right. sometimes the. But is there uh, is there a, are there any legal restrictions as to what you can do? Totally, there are legal restrictions. So people get uh, get arrested even. So mostly because they behave according to their habits. For example, they go out, they don't think of the danger. Uh, there are people being arrested. If I go out now, um, I cannot because it's later than 6 o'clock at night. It means every shop is closed, except if I have a read that is not being written and I have to give evidence of that. So there are um, block posts on the street. And they will ask me, where are you going? And I have to prove where I'm going to. For example, I need to assist my mother who lives in another city or I have an emergency or I need to go for work. And this system seems to work. Of course, it's uh, shocking for us because we have never been used to this kind of uh, constraints. But at the moment, it seems it, it's working. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.